greener on the other side Caterpillar to a butterfly It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. Good Saturday morning. You have tuned into Green and Growing. You heard it right there in the intro on 95.5 WSB. I'm your host, Ashley Frasca. Happy to be with you. And I've been teasing ahead to this topic for a number of weeks now. So I want you to listen closely. If you are the owner of a maple tree and you've had some concerns over the last month or so, I think we're going to quell your fears right here. I have brought back my friend, certified aesthetic pruner, Japanese maple expert, Norm Mitleider. Welcome back to the show so soon, Norm. Thank you for having me back, Ashley. It's always a pleasure. You are my go-to guy when I get maple questions, and they're beautiful trees. There's hundreds of varieties, and we may, once I ask you each of these questions from Facebook followers and from listeners, we may develop a theme by the end of it, okay? But you and I have been in constant communication about some of these, and I've even provided you with some of the pictures that the listeners have given. Um, So let's get started with Claudia, who sent a picture, and I'm going to share all of the pictures so you can see the symptoms on the Green and Growing WSB Facebook page, so you can kind of see what other folks are seeing, and and it's relatable. You know, yeah, I'm seeing that too. So Claudia was the first uh, concerned about her coral bark maple. It started dropping leaves, and Norm, when I sent you the picture of that, she sent it, the picture was at the very top of the tree, and I could tell what she meant, but it was really the higher branches and the tips of those branches that were losing leaves. Is that a concern right now? No, it is not. Uh, It is something that the coral barks will do uh, this time of year, especially in hot weather. Uh, It's just weather related, uh, just too hot for them. And they will tend to lose those first couple of inches of leaves on a stem. Usually it's on the whips. Mm -hmm. But yes, this, this hot weather is certainly not a Japanese maple's best friend. <laughs> no, definitely not. But for folks who don't know what a coral bark maple is, uh, share with us, Norm, the traits of that beautiful tree. It's also known as the sangukaku, and it has beautiful red bark in the winter when all the leaves have fallen. Um, it's not as pronounced during the the growing period because it's hidden by the, the attractive leaves of the tree. In the fall, you get wonderful fall color that's anywhere from a nice yellow with sometimes a hint of orange or red, uh, but it's mostly a, a yellow fall color. So once the leaves fall and the weather starts getting cooler, then the, the red bark really becomes pronounced, and especially on a rainy day, when it gets wet, it just pops. It's really amazing. And also, like you said, that is outstanding, the way you can see that red bark. And there's also another plant uh, that is like that. It is uh, the red twig dogwood. That has very similar characteristics. You've seen those. Yes. Yes, it is. I naturally would prefer Japanese maple over the, the dogwood, but they aren't, I don't believe, as strong genetically. So I, they're attractive plants, but they don't last a long time sometimes. Okay, good advice. So Claudia, nothing to worry about there. Uh, question number two, both Barbara and Joe were relatable in this, that the leaves of their Japanese maples and the picture that they sent 
Uh, the tips looked burnt, and the color of the leaf was becoming a little more of a washed-out green, almost a yellow, when it should be more green to red. So what's the concern with seeing those brown, crispy edges along the tips of the leaves? Again, it's just, you know, the heat of the summer that uh, has taken the toll on it and some of the other Japanese maples that just can't tolerate, you know, hot, extreme weather. Um, so what happens is the, the leaves brown out. Um, it's not going to die. It's just that, uh, you know, next spring there, there should be a, a new leaf that comes out. So I really wouldn't be too overly concerned with that. Naturally, if the leaves, all the leaves on the stem or branch turn brown, then, then there's a problem. Is that, I mean, is that almost maybe, you know, could you call it scorch, the way that it burns like that from the edge in? That is correct. Okay. Very, that's what happens. Okay. So, yeah, and I mean, they always push out new leaves, so that means it's not fatal to the tree. Now, granted, a tree can't afford to lose all of its leaves uh, during an yeah. active, you know, season of growing, but that that's okay. But it's typically only if you notice the tips. Mm-hmm. It's not the, the overall tree. Like you said, if it is, you know, the whole extent of a branch or stem, then you have probably another problem. Yeah, it could be pest or, yeah, something else, maybe drought. But uh, your advice, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago, Norm, of you, you're still out seeing clients and you're, you're maintaining some beautiful landscapes and things like that. Uh, reassuring folks, though, that as they do see dead limbs in their trees, any variety of tree, probably a good idea to go ahead and remove those and prune those out because they're not going to do the tree any good and they're not going to come back, right? That is correct. Um, you always want to be trimming out the dead wood because by leaving it on there, it just prolongs the tree's ability to heal over that and make a good area for the tree to continue to grow. And so, yeah, if you leave it on there, sometimes you see trees try and grow over the dead branch. And so then when it does finally fall off, you kind of have this little volcano part on the the trunk. Yeah, Um, we don't want that. No. Too, if you have concerns, someone did send me a picture of uh, limbs dying kind of sporadically throughout a dogwood tree. Um, and just from the picture she sent, the angle, I can't tell what's going on with the overall health of the tree. I couldn't see the trunk. I couldn't see the base, all that kind of thing. So if you have larger concerns about limbs dying, once you prune them out, like Norm's saying, take them to your extension agent or your county extension office or show them to an expert at Pike Nursery, and maybe they can diagnose you know, and recognize if it is caused by a pest or some larger issue. Um, Vince and I have gone back and forth on Facebook for a couple of months, and I remember, Norm, I sent you his picture, a beautiful autumn glory maple, and the leaves were turning, gosh, early July. So he had concerns there. It was bald and burlapped when he planted it this past April So come early July, he was concerned that maybe that was a problem, you know, in the early establishment of it. But the autumn glory maple was, again, the the leaves were starting to bronze, almost turn a red uh, a month ago. What do you think was going on there? Well, there again, the plant is still young in the new location. So the roots really are still in the root ball. Mm -hmm. And it is possible that the, the root ball may have dried out a little bit. And so, and the tree provided that early fall coloration. Uh, and again, it's due to the weather. 
uh, the heat kind of brings it on. I've seen quite a few trees in driving around that have that similar attribute with the, the leaves turning early. Um, but as long as it's just a faint turning, mm-hmm. then, you know, it's not a problem. But if it really goes full cycle and then turns brown, there's a bigger problem. Yeah. And I did I did get an update from Vince. I stand corrected a couple of weeks ago. I'm just looking back at my notes. It was October Glory, not Autumn Glory. But either way, October Glory Maple and his update, Norm, from, you know, early July when he first reached out to us to just a couple of weeks ago, he said the leaf color, the change hadn't progressed. So that's good. So the theme that you're saying with these three questions from Claudia and from Barbara and from Vince, I I do sense a theme here. It was that prolonged, dry, brutal heat heat we had in June. And we're not only seeing the impacts now of that uh, heat on trees, but also the vegetable gardens paid the price. A lot of things that you're seeing now, it's hard to remember back to that in June, but you can trace that back to a lot of problems now. Yes. Uh, sometimes weather and heat are are not good. Uh, and when we had the prolonged period like we did, uh, that just made it worse. Yeah, yeah. And we did what we could at the time, you know, keeping things watered, uh, watering at the base of the trees, at the base of the shrubs and bushes that you've got, um, avoiding overhead watering. Time of day was pretty important, too. And mulch. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, Norm. Mulch is so important. But tell us how to properly do it, or rather what not to do when you lay it down. You know, mulch can either be pine straw or it can be, you know, wood chips. Uh, if you do the wood chips, it's very important that you do not put it up against the base of the trunk because you don't want that to become a moist sanctuary for potential disease or bug issues. So you want to keep at least maybe an inch around the base of the trunk clear and then out past that, you know, put a good inch inch and a half of mulch to help insulate the soil. You know, mulch is a very good thing because it not only helps retain the moisture in the soil, but it also helps control the temperature of the soil. Yeah. So in the summertime, it helps keep it cooler, and in the wintertime, it helps keep it warmer. Yeah, if you're going to spring to spend the money on a brand new tree that you desire to have in your landscape, it is definitely worth the extra few bucks to get some good mulch, like Norm said, whether it's wood chips or pine straw, even pine bark, something like that. Uh, One more question for you, Norm, as we're wrapping things up. Now that we're over the theme of the June heat causing all of these problems and showing out in the leaves, um, but Doug reached out and he really wants a paper bark maple, which is a really pretty tree. A lot of interest in the trunk almost reminds me of a river birch, um, the way the bark peels. But he's got a lot of interest in a paper bark maple and has had no luck. Um, Does that require a little bit different conditions, or how would Doug go about being successful with one of those? I don't know how readily available they are here Uh in the Atlanta area, um, because I know I've had a client or two that used to have them, but the the weather here just is not good for them, and so I think nurseries stop carrying it. So they, yes, are an attractive tree. They have that exfoliating bark and a nice interest, but due to the heat and humidity here, they aren't a very long-lived tree in my experience. 
So giving it the right amount of moisture, not overwatering it, taking care of you know the mulch, lightly fertilizing, those will help with it. But if it does get bug or disease issues, you know, jumping on top of them before they become bigger issues. Right, right. Well, Norm, this has been great. I'm really glad to have collected those really good questions from folks over the past month or so. And thanks to all of you for the questions about your maple trees for Norm. Well, shoot, my friend, we shall be in touch maybe later into the fall. Um, I know there's probably some pruning or things that we'll need to be doing around the landscape that you can remind us of. Certainly. Look forward to it. All right. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much for coming back so soon. Thank you, and you enjoy yours as well, Ashley. All right, and stay tuned. The top three things to do in the landscape this weekend. Plus, coming up at 6.30, Becky Griffin from the University of Georgia joins us to talk about the Georgia, the great Georgia pollinator census, which is going on right now. You don't want to miss it on 95.5 WSB. I'm really glad Norm was able to reassure us that a lot of things that you're seeing are just the tree's natural reaction to that prolonged heat. Actually, the heat of the summer, it's been pretty brutal. So I always like delivering good news for you there. And now, some more good news. Green Green and growing. Ashley Frasca's top three things to do this weekend. Number one, it's a little late in the season, sure, but if you want to spot spray weeds, do so when temperatures are lower than the mid-80s. The soil's moist and don't mow right before or after herbicide applications. Number two, plant and enjoy the climbing vine Sweet Autumn Clematis. It smells great and you can also consider jasmine too for blooms into the fall. And number three, pinch growing tips from overgrown coleus, begonias, and other summer annuals, and even mums to keep their compact shape through the fall. Now, do understand if you've been able to overwinter mums and now you have them like me, they're starting to bloom a little earlier than fall. They're never going to be that compact shape that they were when you bought them from the nursery. That's has to do with a growth hormone that's injected, I think, when they are started at the nurseries. But yeah, keep those trimmed back a little bit. And when you see foliage plants like coleus, for example, go to flower, and I'm talking about you pinching out the growth tips, the flower part basically, that just sends energy back to the plant so that all the leaves can continue to fill in and grow. But a lot of you prefer to actually leave the flowering parts on the stems, which is great because, again, it attracts pollinators. Going to be back with a full show for you until 9 o'clock. But up next, my conversation with Becky Griffin about the great Georgia pollinator census. Stay tuned. It's WSB. Oh, yeah, the grass is green. I'm going to live where the green grass grows. The grass is always green around the other side. Caterpillar to a butterfly. It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. Thanks for tuning in this morning and for listening. And you know that this is the weekend of the Great Georgia Pollinator Census. So a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Becky Griffin with the University of Georgia Extension. She's not only a pollinator health associate, she's a community and school garden coordinator as well and does so much for this pet project the Great Georgia Pollinator Census. So I want you to take a listen to her passion and why you should just take 15 minutes this weekend. All right, this will be the fourth annual Great Georgia Pollinator Census. 
and it is for all of our citizens. Anyone can count pollinators. So the, the crux for people who have not counted before is you pick a favorite pollinator plant, and that just means one that you see insect activity. You go out and you count pollinators on that plant for 15 minutes. Uh, I always tell people to bring a sweet tea because it's hot in August. <laughs> yes. And then um, come back and upload your counts. And it's all the information is on our website, which is G G A pc.org and there are events all over the state it is a time for all of us to get together celebrate pollinators and do something for them Uh, i think our tagline is protecting pollinators one count at a time and these counts really do matter and the big news are you ready for the big news ashley lay it on me we are now partnering with south carolina south carolinians can join the census this year I've been working all summer with my good friend Amy Dabbs over at Clemson. We've been working with educators in South Carolina and business owners and and citizens over there. So they are also going to be counting. So we are transitioning to the Southeast Pollinator Census as more states see the value in recording our populations and doing educational initiatives about them. So it's a big year for the census, and I'm excited to see Georgia come out strong like we do every year to give a good example to those those Clemson, South Carolinian folks on how this works. Congratulations, because in, after just three years of this project being enacted and with the hard work you've done and involving Master Gardeners, like you said, there are organizations all over the state who are calling on people, you know, come and do the count with us. If you don't want to do it at home alone or in a park by yourself, come join the local Master Gardener group. But you, with a successful program just after three years, it's in its fourth year, having another state tag on. Like you said, they see the value. They see the importance and why this is so widespread and important. So congratulations, Becky. Well, thank you, but really, um, don't give me so much credit because it's the Georgians, it's the, the the gardeners who are out there who feel as passionate as I and you do about these issues that really make this project work. I'm just I'm just happy to be along for the ride and honored that so many people also feel the same way about pollinators that I do. Absolutely. So this is very similar to the folks that have been listening a long time. You know, I've had Becky on every year of the show to talk about this. And we do the Great Backyard Bird Count in February with um, Cornell University, their lab of ornithology. And so this is, you know, on a much more local scale. But this will probably grow to that size uh, in due time. So the same kind of thing, like Becky said, you just sit for 15 minutes, watch a plant, know the plant you're watching, though, try to figure out the name of it so you can, you know, have that for the record. But 15 minutes, you're watching the activity, how many bees, how many butterflies, who visits it, hummingbirds, um, and let them know. And then so when they have the count, should they just have a black or a regular blank piece of paper? Or is there actually like a little grid that I can get online and mark um, on a chart somewhere? Well, there's two ways you can do it. Okay. You can, uh, we have a counting sheet. And this year, I'm happy to tell you, we have Spanish material, Spanish oh, language materials as well. But great. you can get a counting sheet in English or Spanish and print it out. And it is kind of a cheat sheet. So um, it tells you, okay, this is how you know it's a bumblebee. This is how you know it's a, a small bee. And take that to the garden and use that. Or um, it is mobile friendly. So if you just want to take your phone and do the count, you know, and then take your phone out and upload your counts, uh, however you want to do it. But I always like the counting sheet just so a little refresh my memory 
worry about exactly, you know, what the definition of a small b is for the census and that type of thing. But all the materials are there for printout. If you're leading a group effort, um, there's the insect counting guide. You can uh, print that out and use that to educate others on how to, to do the census. So everything should be there. Okay, so the website again is ggapc.org. And if you forget that website, it, it's short for Great Georgia Pollinator Census. So the ggapc.org. And you scroll through about midway down the page, join the count. So there's the directions that Becky's talking about. Um, so if I just do the sheet instead, Becky, and I'm kind of tallying on the sheet, then I do I go to the website and translate it into the website, you know, my count? Right. We will have a portal that will allow you to go ahead and upload your accounts very easily to the website. So, uh, yeah, it's it's going to be a really exciting, exciting two days, and I'm really looking forward to it. We have added new educational materials to the website for educators. I spent a lot of time in the winter meeting with educators across the state who wanted to take the census as a curriculum builder and expand exactly what they could do with it. So we have tons of math lessons. We have lessons on literature that relate to pollinators and the census. So uh, every year we get a little bit bigger and we definitely listen to what people want in the census and try and meet those needs. You and the kids go out in the front yard, the backyard split up. You know, one of you go to the Rose of Sharon, one of you go to the milkweed, one of you go to the penta, you know, plant on the back deck in the in the pot and just see the activity there. I think this is a fantastic opportunity to really, you know, Becky, you and I have joked in years past about pollinators are cute. You know, bugs aren't icky. If you really learn what their jobs are in the grand scheme of this world, like you start looking at bees a little bit differently and they're not gross. They're really cute if you kind of watch just how busy they they are. Oh, yeah. And um, every year at the end of the census, I get this over and over, and it's my favorite comment, and it's the most common one. And people will come up to me and say, Becky, I had no idea. I had no idea of the diversity of insects that visit my garden yeah. or the numbers that do. So it really is, um, you know, you're generating great data for the scientists, and you're also getting something back and learning a little bit more about the ecosystem of your own garden. Here I am with Becky Griffin, Pollinator Health Associate, and a question for you, Becky, for educators. Uh, do they need to do anything different or go to a different website to get involved in this? No, it is the same website. Uh, you just click on the Educators tab, and that will give you um, PowerPoint that you could use in your classroom wow. to educate the children on how to tell the difference between the categories. We have um, lesson plan ideas, activity ideas. There's a honey tasting lesson plan, which Cute. has been real popular. So yes, uh, and businesses as well. We have a business tab. Oh. If you're a business and you want to do this, and um, we have several in the state, and you want to create a small pollinator garden and attract people or have your employees count, we have all that information for you there as well. Okay, so ggapc.org is that website. And why just two days? Why just August 19th and 20th? <laughs> well, and, and you know, I get hate mail from places like <laughs> Tiffin every time because it's so hot. Well, we had to pick August. Uh, August ended up being chosen because we needed a time of the year where something is blooming from the mountains to the sea. And we needed a time of the year where we have the teachers are available and able to incorporate this in their oh. curriculum. So that means early spring is out because up in the mountains, we probably don't have a whole lot blooming. Pollinators aren't moving. Uh, Mayish teachers are not interested in anything but <laughs> testing and field year. day and countdown. 
And we actually did the pilot projects in October and had hurricanes come through. And we also had several days. But what we found is with two days, a weekday and a weekend, people can get excited and stay excited. And it's not too much of a commitment for the average community person to do the census. And Becky, you're such an experienced gardener as well with this last minute or so of us being together. Um, if, if I don't really attract any pollinators to my yard, I don't have a lot of flowers, it's not too late. I can go to the nursery. What were some of your recommendations, maybe just three or four plants that people can pop in the ground now and attract the pollinators? I like to think about right now in my yard, the native Coreopsis is blooming, and I know we, we can get that all over the state. And one trick is to, to bring that plant home in the pot. It's a perennial. Use it for the census, baby it a little bit, and then get it in that yard in the spring or in the fall. Uh, it's a perennial, so it'll come back the next spring. Start looking for some of our, our native asters will be blooming probably toward the end of August. The nurseries have some beautiful asters and even goldenrod. Some of our native goldenrods are now uh, available at nursery. So I think those three would give you a great chance. Or you could visit one of the local public gardens and count with them. So there's lots of options. If you don't have a pollinator garden, don't count yourself out. There are lots of ways to participate. Becky, I so appreciate your time, and I will be talking a lot about this in the coming weeks. Have a great weekend, and thank you for all the good work you do. Thank you, Ashley. It's always a joy. Weather update brought to you by Finley Roofing. Green Green and growing. Ashley Frasca's top three things to do this weekend. Easy enough. You could have predicted this one. Number one, participate in the Great Georgia Pollinator Census today. Visit ggapc.org to print out the counting sheet and to get started. Number two, plant and enjoy the climbing vine, Sweet Autumn Clematis. It smells great. Also consider jasmine, too, for blooms into the fall. And number three, pinch growing tips from overgrown coleus, begonias, and other summer annuals, and even mums to keep their compact shape through the fall. So there you heard Becky encouraging you to participate in the census today. But what if it rains? Well, if your area is too rainy to count today, they are extending the counting dates and will accept counts for tomorrow, Sunday, and Monday, the 22nd. And what if you see the same bee or hummingbird that comes to the plant while you're sitting there? Well, Becky says to count each time an insect lands on the plant. So technically, you're counting insect visits. The reason is because you may know that a particular butterfly landed on the plant and came back and it's the same butterfly, but you don't know if it's the same small bee that has has returned so and some other orders of business too be aware of the temperature like becky said plan ahead have a cold beverage if you need it don't forget sunglasses a hat and sunscreen and really you're only out there for 15 or 20 minutes notice the time you start counting and know the name of the plant you're observing and also be ready to estimate the size of your garden or where you're counting you know half an acre look at a whole acre or just know that it's larger than one acre And lastly, what is a pollinator? Well, Becky says technically anything that moves pollen is a pollinator. So overall, bees are the best pollinators since they have a biological need for pollen and nectar and their bodies have features that allow them to successfully move it around. Hummingbirds are pollinators as they unintentionally get pollen on their bodies as they collect nectar and then they move it to the next plant. Also consider bats and butterflies, beetles, and other small mammals. And when Becky was on two weeks ago, she was excited to share news with us about the Urban Pollinator Conference. 
we're bringing it to Athens this year wow. in October. Okay. It is the Protecting Pollinators in Urban Landscapes Conference. And you can just, uh, if you go to protectingpollinators.org, it'll give you the information. And I will, it's October 10th through 12th over at the Georgia Center on the Athens campus. Yeah. And I will tell you and all of your listeners a secret. When I'm on the planning committee and when we were deciding which speakers to ask, I put my wish list out there. So I'm thrilled that we are getting people from all across the country who are experts in their fields coming to Athens to get together and discuss pollinator health and um, trends and what people can do and what is being done. So I'm really excited about being able to have that conference in Athens this year. Now, if I share information for that conference that runs October 10th through the 12th, can just your regular citizen register to be a part of that? Uh, Sure. Sure. Uh, It is a bunch of volunteers planning this, so it's taking us a little bit longer. But yes, it is for if you're a master gardener, especially somebody who wants to learn a little bit more, somebody wants to see what's going on in the academic field of pollinators. There will be takeaways for everyone that will be able to take, take away something that will help them improve how they garden for pollinators. I guarantee that. Coming up in the next hour, your calls in the unlikely place where I recently had some amazing roasted eggplant and why that was so special. Stay tuned.